0: Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNUD unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder of the BVN Unit, and with me is my colleague, Ted
0: Utoft. Hi, Eric. It's great to join you, and I'm very honored to introduce our guest today. Today, we'll be speaking with Faisal Naru. Faisal is a world leader in behavioral insights, currently serving as head strategic management and coordination, where he heads the executive director's office at the OECD. Before this current position, Faisal was senior economic advisor at the OECD, responsible for a team that worked with governments internationally on regulatory policy and governance, institutional change and organizational culture. Faisal initiated an OECD body for CEOs and commissioners of economic regulators to become a world-class regulator which started with just a handful of regulators in 2012 and now regularly has over 70 attending meetings in Paris and many more joining as members. He was also responsible for establishing new OECD initiatives, in particular on good regulatory practices in ASEAN and the Middle East and in emerging countries. Lastly, he founded the work on behavioral insights at the OECD and continues to provide a leadership role advising international and public sector bodies, as well as applying it within the OECD. Faisal is a former member of the UK cabinet office and was the chief advisor to the government of Vietnam on economic and regulatory reforms. Prior to that, he set up and headed the policy and regulatory reform practice, as well as on the leadership board for a global development consultancy. Faisal is also a prolific author of important reports regarding the application of behavioral science in our world, especially one in 2017 entitled Behavioral Insights in Public Policy, Lessons from Across the World which we at the BVA Nudge Unit think is a strong impact in accelerating the application of behavioral science, particularly in government and public policy, that we're seeing here today.
1: Faisal, I am especially honored to welcome you to our Be Good podcast. I think we missed the first time in 2016 in London at the first BIX conference organized by the BIT. I was so interested by what you have shared at that time that I decided to invite you the year after in Paris, I don't know if you remember, to be speaker at the first BIT conference organized in France on the application of behavioral science with a star of the field like Cass Sunstein, Paul Dolan, Pele, and some others. And you were kind enough to agree. Since that time, I think we are used to meet at the same conferences focused in the application of behavioral science all around the world, in fact, in Singapore, in Lebanon, in Brussels. So thanks for everything. And we are very happy and honored with Ted to have the opportunity of an in-depth conversation with you. Welcome, Faisal.
2: Well, thank you very much, Eric. And thank you very much, Ted, as well. Um, It's it's, it's an honor to be Asked to uh, to do this with you, and it's very true. Uh, we we keep meeting uh, throughout the years at various different uh, events uh, and in div- various different locations, um, but we never actually get a chance to sit down and conversate like this. Uh, so thank you very much for this, uh, and very much look forward to look forward to
0: discussing further with you. It takes a pandemic, and here we are. <laughs> now we have the time <laughs> to sit and chat. <laughs> yeah it does <laughs> so Faisal, there's something which has always been really intriguing for me coming from i come from a theater and journalism background through to market research to behavioral science so a very funny route to this world that we now find ourselves in how does a student of mathematics with an initial background in public policy become interested in behavioral science take us back to when you you kind of i don't know uncovered behavioral science and and, and brought it into your career
2: so uh, it's a very interesting question uh, and I'm going to take you back to 1999 uh, which is when I actually joined the civil service uh, and I was working on diversity issues in the senior civil service which sadly was two decade, decades um, um, uh, ago and there still are issues as we all know um, across the world around around this particular subject but I guess What happened was, is that I was recruited to be different. Um, And in being different, um, I wanted to try and explain what some of the issues are around diversities to to senior civil servants that was different from what other civil servants normally do. And what I did, um, and this is probably before there was probably a name for this, but what I did was is that I decided to focus on what are some of the biases and what are some of the assumptions in relation to recruitment? And what I did, and I'm pretty sure it still exists somewhere in the archives of the UK government, um, is I drew a mind map. And I drew a mind map which displayed what are some of the decision making processes involved in trying to, for people from diverse backgrounds, um, in, in, in what they try and think about and what their concerns are. Um, And in this mind map, I detailed all the behaviours, the biases, the assumptions, and then I started to look for all these things in the recruitment processes, um, and ultimately looked at all the different arguments that were being made about why there wasn't full representation uh, within within the civil service. Now, this was back in 1999. It was a revolution back then for anyone to provide uh, a visual, let alone... um, of start to have this kind of this kind of analysis done um and I think going back to your other point Ted which is why math why mathematics probably falls into this is that I was interested in numbers and I was interested in the data and so what I did was is that with that piece of work I looked at the numbers and I looked at the data and Slowly, slowly through that process, I ended up disproving many of the reasons that were being given about why there wasn't full representation. Like there aren't enough out there. If they are um, the, from diverse backgrounds, people, uh, they, they don't necessarily have the right qualifications or they're not interested or they're not applying, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it was only through this kind of evidence-based way of thinking about it and also thinking about the biases and decision making that I ended up setting up what was what was an initiative, and I'm very glad to say it's still an initiative at the moment, even 20 years later. Um, it's now a multi-award-winning summer diversity internship program, was kind of the solution to try and address this issue from way back, or from way back then. And so I'd say that my interest was kind of always there around why do people do the things that they do from one aspect. And from the other aspect, when we are making decisions inside organisations, are we actually sure about what we think is actually going on out there? And how can we actually find out what is really the drivers behind people's behaviours? And I think I, that's where I really started um, this. But like I said, you know, I didn't really have a name for it. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily something that was, uh, that was, uh, that was known out there.
0: I guess you know this idea around diversity and in- inclusion and and its necessity has never been more salient and more top of mind than now. Do you think, Faisal, there's been any I don't want to say concrete, but any uh, evidence you would have of of a few things that have really worked in the last twenty years to to drive diversity and inclusion is my first question. And my second question is, What's a niggling issue or, or a, a barrier that remains or a bias that remains that you think behavioral science could could attack to really bring about more gender equity, uh, ethnic equity, cognitive equity amongst, amongst organizations, whether it's a civil service or private enterprise?
2: So I think, um, so it's, it's probably going to sound quite basic, but I think probably the ones that have been the most successful are the ones that have been genuine about it. Um, and I think that that's probably a quite an important point to make, which is that uh, yeah, there are lots of initiatives that happen, but not all of the initiatives are necessarily there to really drive change. Um, sometimes initiatives are there to say that people have an initiative. So I think that's the first thing, is about being genuine about the initiatives. Then once there is kind of that genuine endeavour there, then leadership is incredibly important. Um, message from the top is always going to be the main thing that people are going to be looking towards, um, and then I think it's about about trying to um, it's about trying to create the opportunities on the one hand that recognizes different skill sets, um, and I think the second thing is then. Ensuring that those skill sets are being recognised. So what I mean by that is that, for instance, and if I take myself back to some of the arguments being made um, throughout, kind of through that, that that piece of analysis that I did back in 20 years ago, essentially what I ended up proving is that if if you want the best people on the planet in your boardroom, or or the best people in the country running your civil service, it has to be diverse. Because that is what the data is showing us. If you look at attainment grades, if you look at uh, if you look at uh, qualifications, if you look at impact, if you look at all of these things objectively, you, if there's no other there's no other conclusion to make other than other than the fact that you have to have um, a broader a broader uh, a level of representation, and if you don't, it means your top tier team is not as good as it could be. And that's not in the interest of any organization um, at all. And I think that and I think that's kind of one of the key points here. And I think once you get around to that, then you would begin to understand that, well, are we assessing people in the right way? And where where do we have biases that we are that we are that we are not necessarily aware of um, or that we are beginning to introduce into our organization? That means that we aren't allowing the best possible people and best possible talent to come to the top and i think that is kind of some of the key fundamentals that needs to be realized genuinely in order to start to address i think some of the some of the issues that we have out there
0: great so thinking back 20 years ago or so were there any researchers mentors authors that really played an influential role in you you know as you said looking at something this way at least within the civil service 20 years ago was a new way of 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 tackling an issue what was feeding that interest and feeding that information that that allowed you to you know sketch out this mind map that allowed you to to reframe things in a behavioral sense as opposed to just you know data using data to 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 think about behavior
2: so um so the, so the first thing that, that that always reminds me is that my first boss, when I came in to the civil service, uh, she was fantastic. She was a great mentor to me. And she, uh, and I remember starting to write like a civil servant and she stopped me and she says, no, she said, we brought you in to be different um, and we want you to continue to think in these different ways and to try and find out oh, what's going on. Um, and I think that that was something that I did. And so I started to um, obviously look at various different academics and read various different things and kind of keep afresh of, of what is going on inside various different fields. Um, but then I would probably say that um, it would be amiss of me not to mention uh, the book Nudge. Um, and, and, and at that point, actually, um, I, was in, I was in Vietnam uh, and there, I was under an entirely new educative process where I was learning an entirely new culture, an entirely new system and an entirely different set of behaviours that people were doing that I was trying to understand. And so I had to check all of the, all of the learning that I had from my, from my previous experience inside the UK civil Service to start to say, well, actually, in this culture, in this context, things work in a very different way. And it was actually there when I was sitting in Hanoi um, and the book Nudge came out and I read it and um, I was like, it was a bit of an aha moment. You know, to say that finally there's kind of, you know, there's language out there that describes all of, the, all of these things. Finally there's kind of, and not to say that there wasn't anything before, but it would never, never been expressed in this way, which was so clear for everyone to understand. So I think it probably be amiss of me not to mention both uh, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler in terms of uh, being big influences on me then there's a whole plethora of others and I'm not going to name them because otherwise I'm going to get into trouble if I don't every single person that I've been involved with but what I would say what what I would say is that there's kind of different levels there's kind of some of the foundational thinkers for this then there's Um, kind of a bunch of people who are out there really doing things and applying things who I take great inspiration from, and many of them you've already had here, and many I'm sure you'll have in the future, then I think the really exciting thing is the young talent out there. Um, I'm often running recruitments and get get kind of applications coming in from young and budding behavioural scientists out there. And uh, the talent out there is fantastic, and the interest that is out there is fantastic, and that uh, you know is a credit to the people that started the entire uh, the entire movement, if you like. Um, but I think that the future is bright, and I think that that is something that really excites me is the fact that there are so many young people out there in academia who have who have just said yes, this is the way to go, and are setting up all kinds of different initiatives and things from across the world.
0: Absolutely. I had a very similar experience to you sitting in Singapore in Southeast Asia when Nudge came out, I hadn't heard of it yet. And my older sister who works in in healthcare research, uh, sent me a book as sent me the book as part of a care package. And, you know, working in market research, she said, I think this book is going to really affect the way in which your industry moves forward. And I was like, <laughs> what's this yellow book? I don't know. <laughs> and here we are. What are 10 years later, 15 years later? Yeah. So Faisal, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience as a senior economic advisor at the OECD, especially the work you've done regarding the application of behavioral science? So apart from just instilling a belief amongst amongst your your colleagues and and stakeholders, but how do we apply behavioral science at the OECD in a way that in a way that you know changes the work that you do?
2: Yeah, so I I think I think that when um I think when I came in, I had a, obviously with, with with all of the background that I had, I had a strong interest in doing something around here. And I think that you know at the beginning it was it was it was kind of like you know project work on the weekends and evenings by myself. And then and then slowly, slowly, I started to build a team. And then you know there's 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 a bunch of great people who I've worked with on this uh, and who have been who, have, who still continue to do work in this whether. Um, you know, so Filippo or Fatima or Winona and James and Anna are still there, and Shelley, and then later on there was Jude and Francesca and Leone and Junyang and Kate, and so you can see that there's, you know, there's a there's a there's a large number of of people that that have been there. But I think that uh, so I think you know, and I I love to work in teams, and so I, I love the fact that you know there's been other people that I've been able to work with in order to. Do some of this but i think that certainly at the beginning i think that i saw the role really to um and the main objective to really understand what is going on and i think that there was a real need for that back then so we're talking about back in 2012 when it all really started um when people were still beginning to understand what was going on there were only a handful of behavioral units across the world but there certainly was kind of a momentum building up and I think that one of the first, one of the first roles that I, I, I wanted to do was to kind of uncover a bit of what's going on because, um, like Eric says, you know, we go to all these different conferences and we keep learning different things, but there wasn't anybody out there that was putting it all together for everyone to see the same picture. Um, you know, it was, a bit like, it was a bit like everyone with blindfolds feeding the elephant, right? You know, some people felt a trunk, other people felt a tail, but no one knew what the elephant looked like um and uh and so and so i i think one of the things was to try and uncover what the what the elephant actually looked like but objectively as well um you know it wasn't necessarily to purport that there was going to be one particular way forward but it was to objectively say well look is this really being used by governments and and by regulators and if it is what is the way that it's been using uh, It's it's been used and i think that's something that we uh kind of continue to do all the way throughout. Um, and that really led to the 2017 publication that you guys mentioned was to was to say that look, nobody out there has the full picture. I think I think we do, and I think we need to show it to everyone. So that was kind of really the impetus behind having that. I think then the next thing that I was trying to do really was to start to push the envelope a bit. And also fill some of the gaps and respond to what was now becoming a behavioral community was really needing. So, you know, the first thing that the behavioral community needed was just kind of to be able to talk to each other in a very open and honest way. And we had some of those conversations, which were great, where people could generally come with their, you know, with their success stories, but also with their anxieties and with their, um, and with some of the challenges that they had and build a bit. A bit of that community, um, and then with that, then came the ideas of right. So need to start to have some demonstration projects of how to apply it in the field, whether it's on changing organizational culture or whether it's uh, trying to uh, do some other pieces of work, which um, which traditionally you wouldn't necessarily think would be uh, would be something that you would apply behavioral science to. Um, and I think that was really the next stage of this. Um, and I think now it's kind of evolved towards um, one of those demonstration projects of how do you implement it inside an organisation, into the running of an organisation? And how do you really mainstream it so that um, it's not um, you know an additional specialised unit? Um, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing because of it just depends upon um, how you want to utilise this, but Again, showing another way of doing it where um, it can be embedded into the running of an organization instead. And I think that has always kind of been, um, I guess, um, the mantra certainly that I've had of of trying to keep on finding things that are going to help the community as a whole and also discover more and more ways that the science can be used but also where it can't and where the limitations are as well. And I think, you know, being quite honest about that is very important.
0: Yeah. When we think back to that 2017 report, two questions for you. What was the kind of primary or original objective of that report? And and what would, for you, what would be the kind of primary learning or, or key takeaway? Um, I, obviously, it's it's a it's a big piece of work, but what would be the kind of one or two things that you think you could really take away from that report that have influenced, you know, the work moving on from that?
2: So, um so the, so the first thing really was to again being a kind of a data and numbers guy was to have the actual evidence of where it's being applied and in what way and that was and that was the first thing because of you know like I said you know going to various conferences and and things you'd hear various whispers and various claims and conversations going on but I kind of wanted to wanted to say right look this is this is what is really happening and this is what's really going on so that was kind of the first the first thing and I think one of the one of the biggest learnings I think from there was the fact that it's happening all over the place kind of globally um, and actually there's some work going on right now in kind of trying to update some of that to understand what's going on right now in 2020 and you know it's still growing and there's still more and more initiatives happening um, but i think the other thing was that the application of it was much wider than what i think i i certainly would have originally have thought of um and what i mean by that is that it wasn't a a couple of policy areas where it was being applied um but it was practically every policy area um that uh, where where it was being applied and if we look at you know now and the relevance of it uh, you know it wasn't just in relation to Health or tax or or, or or some of the things that many people had heard many of the great examples from, but it was also labour market reform, uh, or, it was, uh, uh, or it was or, or it was or was things about administrative reform. Um, so that was kind of kind of I think one thing that was quite that was quite um, that was quite eye opening I think. Um, and I think the other thing that was quite eye opening as well was the the diversity in the field. And I think that, again, is something that is coming out more and more now. I think that when people first look at this from the outside, they sometimes think as, think as though everybody in the behavioural insights, behavioural science field thinks the same and looks the same and do the same things and they're all speaking the same stuff, when actually it's not. You know, there, are, there is a diversity of thought about methodologies. There's a diversity of thought about where you need to take this. There's a diversity of thought around what the application should and shouldn't be. Um and that's healthy. And that's good for the field. And that was again, I think, something that was discovered um, uh, through that report, but also through subsequent work as well, which I think is good for the good for the future of the field.
0: And looking back kind of 10 years after the creation of the BIT here in the UK, what has surprised or struck you the most? In terms of how governments and public organizations have applied behavioral insights, I mean you've talked about the diversity of its application, but has anything else kind of surprised you or, or you know, fueled your fire in terms of how it how it's being applied in in the public space?
2: So I think uh, I think I think the first thing again going back to numbers is just the number of them, and um, and I think fast forward from two thousand and seventeen, the, and where there were about two hundred odd initiatives that are consistently applied behavioral science, you know, that's, that's doubled, um, which is, which is, I think, which is a testament to the fact that it's working, um, and it's being used quite well. Um, I think probably though, um, the cautionary tale that i probably put to that is the fact that, um, there it, it's, there's probably a period now of renewal about thinking about where it should go next. And I think that is probably the interesting thing looking 10 10 years forward now. Whereas I think before there was probably quite a fixed model on what people were thinking that you needed to do about the tools like for instance running uh, RCTs. Um, and I think that now what's interesting at the moment is that there are now new things that people are thinking about, about, you know, for instance, you know, how do we do things like rapid testing? Um, How can we use maybe labs a bit more um, and how do we and how do we start to use this not by itself, but how do we use this with, say, for instance, data science or how do we use this with design research or how do we use this with other things? And I think that is now, again, a very interesting um, point, I think, where we are at. I think another very interesting point where we're at now is, and I know that there's increasing conversations about this, is around the fact that if you looked back then, there was probably a predominant number that were in the global north, if you like, you know, from kind of uh, more the, the, the west, as it were. And I think what's really interesting is what's happening now in the global south and in the east, um, and how things are, how things are changing there. Where again, there's a different, there's a different school of thought, and there's a different way of applying this, and there's a different context that this has to be applied in. But the nice thing is that again, everyone's thinking about actual impact and behaviour. But it's just that I think everyone's realizing that we're going to have to do it differently in different pra- places. We can't, we can't use the same things everywhere. That's, uh, you know, that kind of goes a bit against what the whole mantra of the behavioural insights world was in the first instance.
0: Yeah, we've had some some internal discussions with our team as well, having spent 13 years in Asia. I was discussing with a colleague of mine who's recently moved to Singapore about social norms in an East Asian context are totally different, not just contextually, yeah. the idea of norms, the idea of what is collective, what is individual. And so these kind of Proven validated biases and and heuristics that we've kind of taken on as as god's honest truth we have to reexamine in a, in a new con, you know in an Asian context in a Latin context in a African context um, and thinking about what does that mean and what are the heuristics of behavioral science in these you know other markets geographies mindsets et cetera I think it's really exciting actually
2: yeah no I think I think you're right, and I think also from kind of a public administration perspective as well is that there are different appetites by these different areas and different contexts um, for the application of it. Um, and so, uh, you know, for some, you know, just tinkering on the, with the choice architecture is not enough. And actually, you know, changing dramatically the choice architecture and removing choice even is perfectly fine. That wouldn't necessarily be the case in other contexts where you know, where choice um, is, is, is of paramount, uh, freedom of choice is kind of paramount importance um, and that can't be tinkered with whatever. So I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that all um, leads to kind of more excitement, I think, for where the field is going and how in particular it's being applied.
1: Fezal, another topic, you recently published a very insightful post on LinkedIn on a topic which is at the heart of what we do at the BV Energy Unit. The title is Behavioral Organization, Four Lessons to Infuse Behavioral Insight. Could you come back for us on each of your four lessons? Sure.
2: So there were four, there were four lessons. And the first lesson um, is around managing expectations um that it's really important to get the expectations right from the beginning and i think this is this is partly um all of those lessons that i've had from the various conversations that i keep having with behavioral practitioners from across the world on a regular basis and also my own personal experience of also setting up and doing behavioral initiatives um is that it's really important to get the expectations right at the beginning that People can become very, in particular, kind of inside organizations. Um, uh, you know, whether it's leaders or whether it's it's people um, who are uh, uh, who are lower down in the chain, um, they can become very excited about the prospect of doing something new and doing something like this. But it's important for them to know that it's not silver bullet, um, and for them to understand what it's going to take to be able to do this. And so for instance, you know, one of the things that they do have to sign up to is experimentation. And in, and in, as we all know, in experimentation, sometimes you get null results or sometimes, the, or sometimes you get the opposite results to so the kind of things that you were hoping for. And they have to be ready for that. Um, and if they're not, then you can have problems later on uh, where the, kind of the expectations have been set pretty high and there's an expectation that all of a sudden you're going to be I don't know, saving millions or you're going to be, uh, you know, drastically transforming behaviors and it doesn't turn out. Um, the second thing I think is around mainstreaming. Um, and this goes, I think, back to the point that I was making earlier on. And I think I'm a big advocate for the mainstreaming of this, which is that um, it's important to get it embedded inside existing systems and processes. And I think that, there's there's always been a danger, and indeed, again, this is some of the lessons from across the world um, uh, right now, is that there is a danger of becoming siloed as the new initiative, as the new kid on the block. Um, and I don't think that that is healthy for the long term, um, but rather making sure that it's embedded inside existing systems, existing teams, existing processes, I think is very important. Um, and part of that also means that you may have a behavioral scientist join your organization, but not as a behavioral scientist. Um, you know, you can have them taking up a non-specific behavioral role, but what they would end up doing would be they'd be end up infusing their skills and their skill set into the work that they're doing. It could be, you know, I don't know, as a recruiter. Um, or it could be, um, you know, somebody in finance. Um, but they would be using, you know, the tools that they have in relation to biases and debiasing decision making, etc., in order for them to be able to do um, for them to be able to do the work that they're supposed to do even better, or in a different way than they did previously. Um, the other point that I make, uh, which is the third lesson, which is uh, to work with willing partners. Um, I know that in an ideal world, you'd go and you'd be able to work with the exact people who that fit perfectly what you may have in your mind in relation to, say, an experiment, or where you may have all the right data points and you may be able to do some fantastic pieces of work. Um, however, we do have to understand that inside organisations, often you work, there are pockets of resistance. Um, sometimes it's deliberate, sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes it's just because people are very busy and they may not be able to work with you as much as you might think so. And I think particularly at the beginning when you're setting up something, um, you need to be able to run fast um, and you need to be able to find people that you can do that with. So finding willing partners, not necessarily going for the ideal partner, is sometimes absolutely fine. Um, And the final thing that I say is that it's important to invest up front in relation to when you're applying the behavioural sciences inside an organisation, because What often gets missed, particularly when um, there's the initial approach to do this, is that um, the, the thing that people often are focused upon, right? So when we are going to apply this, we're going to run some kind of experiment at some point. And the focus is on running the experiment and then getting the results afterwards. But what is sometimes missed is the amount of work that it takes up front in order to get everything right. Set everything up first, and not just in terms of running an experiment, but setting everything up in terms of the institution, so that whatever results come through would end up actually being adopted, um, is is something that is not necessarily always appreciated. I mean, I always say that in the work that we've done, if I look at you know overarching you know a behavioural project, you know, I'd probably say eighty percent of the time is spent up front, you know. The, you know, if you get the 80% right, then the experiment is quick, the results are quick, and the adoption is quick. Um, but, um, but there isn't necessarily always that understanding. And I think sometimes people focus too much on on the, on the back end of running the experiment and getting the results instead. So those are, those are the four key lessons, I think, that certainly I have experienced, but also I know that many others have experienced as well out there in the field.
1: Okay, great. Very insightful. Um, I would like to speak a little about behavioral science in private organization. And first, what do you see as the major differences and different challenges between applying behavioral science in the public sector versus in the private sector?
2: So So I think there's probably two things that come to mind immediately. I think the first thing is the appetite for experimentation. Uh and I think ironically there, um, you know, it's quite interesting that um that that the public sector has probably taken this on board and is running with this faster than the private sector. Maybe, and I don't know the truth of this, so we'd have to find the numbers in order to verify, but uh, but but maybe part of it is the appetite for experimentation because um ha- having been inside um, the private sector as well, is that sometimes decisions are made based upon a cost-benefit analysis, and part of that is also based upon um, what will be the result of the investment. Now, if you're running an experiment, the result of that experiment may be zero. Um, you don't know. Um, and so how much are, are, is the private sector willing to undertake things and kind of go down roads of discovery that may lead to lead to null results, I think is an interesting question about whether or not there is the right appetite out there for. But I think there's a different challenge. I think that in the in the public sector, they've kind of they kind of have to, because they really need to find out what's going on. Um, but in the private sector, they don't necessarily have to, and you can. Uh, you can kind of, you know, go on hunches and be much more nimble and quick. And this is something that goes slightly against that, uh, particularly sometimes maybe where decision making is more intuitive um, rather than science-based. Um, but, you know, the argument, of course, here is that the more scientific your decision making is, the less likely you are to fail in it. So I think that, or have failures from it. So I think that that's, that's, that's kind of one point. I think the second point is probably around ethics and transparency. I think that the public sector already had and already does have a bunch of accountability mechanisms for having ethical frameworks and having transparency mechanisms in order to apply this. And I think where there has been one of the critiques, of course, about the use of behavioural insights has been that um, you know is this something that is close towards manipulation, and is this something that is uh, that that if somebody found out about, there would be um, you know the, the you know the consumer in the private sector's case uh, or the client would be very upset about. Um, and I think that the public sector, having already thought through all of those things not necessarily in a behavioral insights space, but certainly in relation to a public policy and politics space, means that they could already go through this in a much quicker way. Um, I think probably um, the one thing that I probably say to the private sector in that is that there seems to be more and more evidence coming forward that actually, by being transparent about about the use of this, um, is not a bad thing. Um, and actually doesn't necessarily reduce the impact that you're going to have in fact it may actually increase it um, and i think that that again is something for um for businesses and for the private sector to become more aware around and i think and i think but i think i think many of them are having to move in that direction anyway right because of um you know i think that the values and the ethics that they have are are more under scrutiny now than they ever have been before um, and therefore this is you know just another reason for that to be that to be uh that to be organized i guess and communicated to their to their um well to the world really um
1: building on this um i would be very uh, interested to know your advice to help practitioners to make an ethical use of behavioral insight
2: i think i think the number one thing is that you have to have checks and balances in your setup so and there's lots of different ways to do this again you know you know there's a diversity of of thought around this um, and so there isn't one particular way um, you know sometimes i've seen organizations set up a, a specific ethical board that kind of checks things you know a bit like an academic board um, uh, that that can check things in other instances you have the systems and procedures in place internally, so that you go through various, various, um, various kind of checks and balances. Whether that's, um, you know, with associations, or whether that's with uh, senior leaders, or whether that's with particular people with functions inside an organisation. But I think, I, I think, I think the number one thing is that you need to figure out what are the right checks and balances that you that you have, that you can already utilize. And if you have anything missing, what else is it that you need to include in there that will help practitioners in order to, in order to apply behavioral insights. And I would say that there's two sides to this. One is the formal, one is the informal, Uh, you know, the formal stuff you need inside an organization. But, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to your fellow behavioral insights community members. Uh, because uh, you'll you'll see that many are often thinking about similar things from different parts of the world um, and that they're more than happy to share share things talk through things and uh, and discuss and and see what are the right right things that you need to have but i think that um but i think that it's a it's a, it's a critical element i think in any particular setup that you might have
1: Great. Fezal, we have been together a member of the Nudging for Good Awards last year that is organized every two years by the AIM European Brands Association. For our listeners, the purpose of the Nudging for Good Awards is to promote the application of the nudge approach by the big consumer good companies to help consumers adopt healthier and better choices. What do you think about this initiative?
2: Well, I think it's good, and I think it's good for, for, for one critical reason. I think because it's not only trying to help encourage and recognize the private sector that is trying to apply behavioral insights, but it's making sure that they're doing it for good. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, and this is, of course, you know, Richard Thaler's mantra, you know, nudging for good, um, and I think, that, I think that that is really, really important. For the private sector to make sure that they stick on, and that they ensure that they are applying this for for good. And what they have to realise, and I think the ones that we saw, and it was a great privilege to be on that panel, um, was that was that many of them understood um, that um, that by them doing things that was for the common good and for the good of their consumers was only going to benefit them in the end anyway. Um, And this, again, goes against maybe some of the critiques that there might be out there about the use of this, that anybody that tries to use this uh, in a not-for-good way is only going to end up harming themselves eventually um, because of the fact that, that's just not what people appreciate um and it it the, and the damage that it does to one's brand from having that allegation against you just even once is just too high a price to pay for all the years of brand building and trust building between themselves and their and their customers and their and and their consumers etc so i think that this is this is a good and healthy reminder for them to be able to for them to first of all be encouraged to continue to apply uh, the the science inside their own work, Um, but more importantly for them to make sure that they continue to do it for good.
1: Okay, great. And where do you see the biggest opportunities in terms of applying behavioral science for good in the private sector?
2: I think, I, think, I think the number one thing for the private sector there is about understanding uh, that it's about their relationship with their customers and their consumers. And that doing it for good means that you'll be searching for those win-win scenarios uh, where, yes, obviously they're a private sector company and they need to be, they need to be looking after their own profitability. But that that profitability doesn't come at a social cost, and I think also this is something that maybe is 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 uh, uh, quite an apt I think point at the moment in the current in the current climate and the current situation that we have here, where um, whether it's in relation to sustainability or whether it's in relation to public health, I think that what 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 the private sector or what the more forward-thinking and potentially more successful members of the private sector um, would be be looking at is they'd be looking at this as a competitive advantage for them to move out in front of the others as the ones that are really understanding, you know, the ethics and the values of the the people that they're trying to attract, whether it's to the services or to their products, um, and that they 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 need to really understand what they're doing and why they're doing it and how that is actually impacting upon the end users that they're trying to attract more and more so i think really you know that that is that is the biggest untapped opportunity i think for for the private sector
0: so you, you, you led into the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is, you know, we're recording this in early July 2020. There's obviously a major issue on everyone's mind, which, of course, is the coronavirus and, and the economic impact. We'd love to hear your perspective on a few levels as a behavioral practitioner, as an expert in public policy and kind of as a citizen. So if I start us off first with, you know, we've seen different governments react somewhat differently to the crisis. Do you have a perspective to share on on how governments have been reacting to to the health crisis?
2: So I think really, the big thing here, I think for me is that there are lessons in decision making um and I think that those that 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 those that have had clarity about this being a health issue first and foremost um have probably been those who have also now come out of lockdown quicker and have managed many of those uh many of those uh many of the well, the huge crisis that has has gripped the entire world. Um, But I think it's also interesting how how organisations have also responded um, and how many are changing a a result of this. And I think for both, whether it's governments or whether it's for the private sector or whether it's for public sector organisations, I think that what is really interesting at the moment is how many of them are going to treat this as a woke moment for themselves where they're really going to be able to, first of all, question all of the things that they were just doing previously in kind of automatic mode uh, in a very robotic, robotic fashion. Um, and now how they can really begin to become quite deliberate in everything that they're trying to do. So whether that's in relation to how, how your economy is structured, for instance, all the way to how an organization organizes its day and its meetings. All of those things have now been questioned as a result of this disruption that's happened across acro- across the globe. And those who I think those that treat it as a genuine genuine disruption and then recheck themselves, I think are going to come out of this much better. Um, as opposed to those who maybe have treated this as a minor pause on what they are normally going to do, and then go back to normal. Um, they are probably the ones that are going to be least prepared for whatever's going to come in the future. And you know, I don't have a crystal ball, crystal ball. No, I don't. Think it's going to happen. Um, but I think you know, everyone is talking about the new normal and what that means. But I think part of part of being in that woke moment means that you can actually define what that new normal is, as opposed to being subjected to it. And I think that whether it's a government whether it's an organization um whether it's even an individual and i know even individuals are questioning themselves and how they live their lives um you know i think those that are actually treating it like that i think are probably going to be the ones that are gonna come out much more successful in the next two three four five ten years
0: yeah and so on a second level how do you view this crisis from a behavioral science perspective you know where and how do you think that the behavioral science community has the greatest opportunity to help make a difference? Um, and does it lie in influencing government response to the crisis or perhaps nudging personal behaviors? Where do you think we as practitioners of behavioral science can, can help, can, can initiate change?
2: I think, I, think, I think the first thing is really just in kind of the, the understanding of what has happened. I think that's kind of the first thing—just really understanding what has what's happened and understanding what the impact has actually been on people. Um, and I think that—that that I think is probably you know the first key fundamental thing about understanding you know whether or not people are really dying to just go back to, you know, commuting on the train every single day, or whether or not actually this is the moment where people are going to say, no, do you know what? I don't need to, and I don't want to, um, or I want to do it through cycling or something else you know is 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 i think the kind of thing that is kind of the first thing that we really where the behavioral science community probably has a way of of getting some of these answers and I, and the reason why and i know that some people will say well look you know any group of researchers can potentially do this and they can find this out but i think the reason why the behavioral science community is quite important in here is that one you know the thing that the behavioral science community focuses on is trying to illicit information in a debiased fashion in order to genuinely come out with what are the real um, well as much as we know are the real but you know what are what are what are some responses that are as less biased as is as is possible in order to inform where everybody is um, then I think then I think the next thing really is going to be in helping to shape the future whatever that is um, and that... And that has to be where, you know, potential for experimentation is just huge. Um, you know, where there is kind of a bit this pause in everyone returning back to the way things maybe were is really, you know, a fantastic chance to, to, to experiment and to capture data in order to say, well, actually, you know, this is, this is now the way that people prefer to do things. And guess what? It's better for the environment. And guess what? It's better for for social outcomes or it's better for sustainable outcomes. And I think that those are kind of some of the areas where it would be great for the behavioural science community to be involved in um, now and where there are some of the biggest opportunities to help influence, whether it's governments um, or whether it's individual behaviours. I think it has to be both. But I think that both really are up for grabs at the moment.
0: Third, Faisal, you alluded to this a little bit. On the kind of citizen or individual level, one issue of personal interest for me is about polarization. And it strikes me that behavioral science has value in diagnosing some heuristics, maybe confirmation bias, um, that are pulling people and, and societies apart in this kind of crisis moment. Do you think behavioral science can play a role in bringing societies back together or countering polarization or community building?
2: Yes, uh, I think so. Uh, but of course, you know, it's a much bigger question, uh, and it, you know, it's a much bigger problem. But I think, I think again, I think, I think one of the biggest things that it can do is just by understanding why people are behaving in the way that they're behaving. I think that's going to be key in addressing, uh, in, in, in addressing this. And it is again, you know, it is about debiasing. You know, it's not about convincing people to think a certain way. You know, that is would not be the way to to apply behavioral insights in, in, this, in this particular situation, but it's to recognize that people are constantly influenced by interested parties and vested interests, uh, which are always not to the benefit of the individual or the whole of society, but they exist. Um, and understanding how that is influencing and how that is biasing people's people's understanding of the world or, what, or how it's how it's how it's how it's impacting upon um, the way that people behave i think is going to be uh, incredibly important and and you know then some of the solutions about it isn't necessarily around um, like i say you know, it's not around trying to trying to change um, the way that people think but it is around understanding that um, that some reasons why people do the way they do things are systemic. And so sometimes those systems need to change. But I think in other instances, it is because of, you know, sometimes the way that information is presented or the way that there is confirmation bias and how, you know, certain types of uh, access to information, uh, you know, feed into that confirmation. Uh, bias are, are the kind of things that if we understand more about that and what their impacts are then we can try and ensure that it doesn't have the kind of negative impacts that it's having upon society as a whole
1: Faisal, maybe the last question, but not a small one. Uh, Looking to the future, uh, you certainly know that the behavioral scientist publication has recently, beginning of this year, asked the behavioral science community to write articles about the future of behavioral economics. What is your vision of the future of our field?
2: Well, I think I, I, I contributed to that. And I think I would say that uh, my uh, my vision is bright but cautious. Uh, and I think that there are three key things here. I think the first thing is humility. Um, that uh, that 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 I think that what the behavioral science is trying to do is, and the reason why I've been so attracted by it from, uh, from way back when, um, is that it's, it, it tries to introduce, if you like, a getting real moment for whether it's decision makers, or whether it's people, whether it's organizations, whether it's governments, but for them to kind of get real and to not live in, uh, in a paradigm of false certainty where they are happy with their confirmation biases, they're happy with the assumptions that they have. They're happy they're happy with the availability heuristics that they that they live in and they make their decisions within but rather shifting them towards um, sure uncertainty and to be living in that world and to understand that that's just the world that we live in now it's so dynamic it's so fast fast paced um, so with that though comes the humility of understanding that we don't know all the answers and we have to continually be trying to find out what the answers are and checking the answers for any biases that we may have in case we've made a mistake in any of our assumptions that we have um and that applies both to the public and private institutions so a good dose of humility for is the starting point to know that we're 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 living in in unpredictable times um and that is where we're going to be for a long time i think the second thing is around um being honest Um, and being honest means being able to have a mature relationship with your stakeholders whether that's with consumers and customers or whether that's with government and and private sector um, and whoever else it may be but and that's where kind of the transparency comes in and kind of the data comes in and that can be scary Um, but you know, it is moving away from more of a kind of command and control world um, towards more of a collaboration and enabling world. Uh, and like I said, you know, that can be, that can be at any level. That can be, at, you know, an international, national, or even a local or even a personal level. But I think that's kind of the second thing of just being honest about where, or where, where we are and, and how we're going to be dealing with things. And the final thing, which uh, we spoke about before as well, is around ethics is that you know one of the key things that's going to help guide us through all of this uncertainty and all of this kind of um i guess kind of different way of of handling relationships and working with people is going to be around having a good set of ethics um and that is going to be fundamental for trying to navigate through what you do and what you don't do um and so Again, you know whether it's the public sector or the private sector, but for them to have, um you know, their frameworks or their checks and balances in place to help them navigate through this is going to be really, really important. You know, it's almost like you know they they, they need an ethical compass to chart the waters, and I think that that's kind of going to be the, the key thing. And I think those are probably you know the three key things that we need. But you know, but I am, I am, I am an optimist. Um, but you know, but I am also a realist at the same time as well.
0: Great. It sounds like we have a lot of work to do, but but a but a bright future as a, as an industry and as a as a group of practitioners trying to to guide people towards making better decisions. That's right. Thanks so much again, Faisal, for joining us today. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Perhaps where they can find more about you, or more about your work, or some of the papers that you've published.
2: Uh, I would probably say that um, you can follow me on Twitter. My uh, my handle is at uh, Faisal underscore Naru, or you'll find me on LinkedIn as well. And I try and keep uh, keep those places as up to date as possible.
0: Great, thank you so much, Faisal. We really appreciated the conversation today. It was great. Thanks. Be good. A podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.